So hi, Michael, what was your first computer? So the first computer that I actually owned at home was a, it was a Pentium 100. It was custom built. So we had someone that our family knew um, who, who built it for us, put it together. It was, I think it had 16 meg of RAM and, you know, a one, 1. 1.2 gigabyte hard drive. And why a custom build? Um, you know what? I don't know. My my dad knew this person and, and she, you know, mm-hmm. convinced him that this was the way to go, I think. Okay. And what was your first action with the computer? Uh, so I, I mainly just used it for, uh, there were games on there, a few game demos that came with it, some CD-ROM. Mm-hmm. I would occasionally use... Um, a local BBS to to use an online text. There was like a text game that a friend of mine and I would play. That was it was kind of like a a dungeon type game. Okay, so um, okay, and and you started in one point of programming or scripting or batch programming, whatever you call it. So what was your next? What or what is your favorite game on the computer? Because BBS text game, I can imagine. Yeah, at that point, I think um, the computer wasn't very powerful, so. I mean, it was powerful enough at the time, but, you know, as new games kept coming out, I, I wasn't able to, to play okay. them quite as well. But um, I, I think at, at first I liked that game quite a bit. You know, it was online. I was able to interact with other what people. What was the name of the game? It was called Valhalla Mud, I believe. So, Valhalla, okay. Yeah, Mud. So I think Mud stands for multi-user done. <clears throat> okay. So, you know, you type east, west, mm-hmm. north, south, and you you, you walk around and fight creatures and earn gold and things like that. Okay, and, and was it graphical or, or it was like just text-based? Just text. Okay. Okay, and there was and it, this server somewhere? So there was like a state machine, a huge state machine in the end? How do you imagine such a game? I mean, back then, you say BBS. BBS is kind of, I don't know, a custom protocol for chats, I would almost say, or for email, something like this, right? Right, well, with the BBS was the way that, that we would connect with the modem. And then mm-hmm. I think once you were on there... Once you're connected to that, you would you would telnet some server, ah. and it, I, I have no idea where it was or. Okay, so there was a telnet based game. Okay, so this is this makes sense. Okay, and okay, mm-hmm. there was a kind of a process which changed the state, I guess. Okay, almost serverless, if I think about that. Yeah, <laughs> it was serverless for me, I think. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what was you kept playing on Pentium or you started programming? So what was the transition from gaming to programming? A program it didn't come till quite a bit later. So at, at school we um, we had some up, some pretty out of date uh, Apple IIs. Mm-hmm. So this was probably the mid or early mid nineties. We were doing a little bit of basic on Apple IIs, and all I really remember about it was creating some you know some trivial graphics on the screen and mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little bit of looping and things like that. But the programming experience that I had it didn't really get too involved until. Um, until I started college, so maybe another nine years after that. Mm-hmm. And you enjoyed, or were you more forced with the Apple IIs? So, I mean, uh, you know, um, were you excited about programming at school, or you had to program at school? I, I did really enjoy it. In fact, um, it was, you know, the whole class, all of my classmates, it was everyone was taking this, you know, this, you know, background in programming course. Mm-hmm. So it was, and it was, you know, maybe 30 minutes once a week. Okay. So we, we never really had the opportunity to get very, you know, involved or do anything too complicated. And you and you kept programming at home, or was just the school assignment? It was really just a school, unfortunately. So that's probably one of my biggest res- regrets was never really taking taking it outside of that. It just never really it never occurred to me that this is something I could do. Okay, uh, you know, in my own. 
So now I'm curious, what you did then in your leisure? So you, I don't know. So as, as a young boy, so what was your leisure then? You did some sports or I don't know. Well, it was video games, I think. So, ah. but it just never, it never turned into programming at that point. Video games on your computer or you had a console like, I don't know, Atari or something like this? I had at that time a, a Sega Genesis. Ah, okay. So this was the fault of the Sega. Without the Sega, you would yeah. be, you would, you would, you know, start to program earlier, I think. Okay. What was your yeah, favorite? Se- what was your favorite Sega game? Uh, I really liked, um, you know, back then I really liked the Sonic the Hedgehog games. Those yeah. were pretty fun, and I liked some role-playing games. There mm-hmm. were a few. I think one of the one of the ones I really liked was called Shining Force Two. Shining. Mm-hmm. Shining Force Two. Okay. Is this somehow related to the Stephen King novel, or no? It's not. It's completely it's not. unrelated. Okay, I think this is somehow okay and interesting. Um, okay, so then, uh, what do you started? So you started to study computer science. I, when I when I started college, I I initially started the the first the first year I started out studying like chemistry. I was thinking I'd go into medicine or something like that. Okay. But you know, after the first set of courses, you know, I talked with my counselor, and he said, you know, based on what I said to him, he said, "Why don't you try a computer science?" Class? So I said, "Okay." And you know, within the first couple of days, I knew that this was this is what I had to do. Okay. So I, you know, I switched majors and just kept going with that, and that's the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> the rest is history. So, but um, yeah. what? Um, okay. So, which programs you wrote at at the university or at college? So, um, mm-hmm. you, you, and which programming languages you learned then? Because I assume from your youth, uh, you own a new uh, basic Apple to basic. So you had. To, mm-hmm. So, what was your first? programming language at college so in that introductory course we did um c it was all in mm-hmm. c you know learning data structures just your typical intro to programming course i suppose so we did that for a couple of, of courses and then we moved into i believe I believe it was 6800 assembly okay and you know that was kind of a hardware course where you would learn mm-hmm. you know how things were structured physically within the machine and then you know, using assembly language is, you know, so much closer to that. So it helps you get a better understanding. And after that, we, I don't remember if Java came first or if Visual Basic it may have been Visual Basic. So, you know, obviously going from assembly to Visual Basic is, is quite a leap and it's a very different experience. So, so you enjoyed the experience or were you shocked or what was your reaction to Visual Basic if you knew assembly? It was... I was surprised that you could do it. You know, on the surface, you're very you could be productive with it because you're creating GUIs, mm-hmm. you know, all these actions that the button clicks and you know the handlers and things like that. But um, at the same time, there, it seemed like there was some magic going on where you know you're coming from assembly where you do everything, and then you know you're in this environment where the screens are are just there based mm-hmm. on you know you draw them, and if I'm remembering correctly, I think you just draw them. Yeah and assign handlers and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you so, enjoyed it somehow? Yeah, I, I did. Okay. And I, I think simultaneously to that, actually, now that I'm talking about it, I think we also had a, a Java course at the scene. Mm-hmm. So we were introduced to those two higher-level languages. Okay, and what is the reaction to Java then? Because Visual Basic is completely different. And Java is a little bit closer to, to C, I would say, right? It is. So the syntax is a lot more like C. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did C, it was usually just, you know, a single main.c with several mm-hmm. functions inside of there. So it was it was kind of a newer experience having like multiple files. So you had to compile each Java file into into a class. Um, mm-hmm. 
I don't recall if we just did it one at a time or if we actually did some more complicated um, compilation techniques. But, you know, there wasn't Maven, there wasn't Ant, there wasn't yeah. anything beyond just the command line. Yeah, and Ant came later. I think around 2000 or something we got Ant and, and Maven was two or three years later. And you started mm -hmm. to program, you know, in your leisure or was just just college for you? I think it was, I think the, the coursework took up enough time and I, you know, I wasn't really doing anything mm. just as a hobby yet at that point. Mm -hmm. So after, and after your university, you start to work on what? So I, I started in an insurance company okay. and um, I was in the, the EDI department. So what we did there was every day we would receive these you know, large files. Mm -hmm containing, you know, health insurance claims and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we'd have to translate those into the, the format expected by the mainframe to actually process those claims. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't using any job at that point. It was, we were using a, a commercial uh, EDI translator package. And there was a lot of glue code around that that needed to be written to move files around. So there mm -hmm. was, you know, Perl scripts. I think it was like K-shell scripts. It was, mm -hmm. it was running on AIX. And we were using Oracle. Mm -hmm. And we had to, you know, FTP the files back and forth. And there was some custom custom mapping software that we used where it wasn't quite drag and drop, but it was, you know, there was some some if-else type logic you could put in there, but it wasn't, it was it was a proprietary language. Mm -hmm. And EDI is, I think, electronic document interchange or data interchange. Is it document or data? You know it? Data. Data interchange. And there was AD, ADI and FACT, right? So there was on this ADI FACT, there's also a format or protocol or something like this? Well, in fact, at this point, I got pretty interested in EDIs. It's, okay. you know, it's just a data format. So within the EDI universe, there's there's X12, which is mm -hmm. the ANSI standard. And then right, what you're saying is EDIFACT. Mm -hmm. And that's I believe that's like the UN standard. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're slightly different from each other. There's different control structures in, in how you lay out the transactions. Okay. But they're very similar other than that. And why you like ADI or why you liked back then ADI? So what fascinated you? I think the thing that really struck me was, or I guess it was, I thought it was cool that you have this, you know, you have this specification about a file format and mm -hmm. and you could just go read that specification. In some cases you have to, you have to pay to get this back, but... <laughs> depending on, on the industry, but you, you know, you can just implement it and you're following the standard and you can talk to other people. You can exchange this information. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was, that was really neat. Okay. So uh, this remembers me, um, reminds me, I was in a project once in a company, they were like Java starters and um, they had to integrate something. And um, because I said, okay, what would be the best way, you know, to, to, to integrate the external resource with transactions and stuff like that? And I said that there is a th something like it's called JCA, Java Connector Architectures, as well uh, defined and well specified, but it's a bit complex. So take a look on that. And um, mm -hmm. I think three three weeks later, they called me and they, they told me, this is the greatest things, thing ever. It's like, why? Yeah, because, you know, they just implemented the interfaces and it's working. I say, yeah, this is crazy because you are a Java beginner and you managed to implement JCA Connector, which is uh, told on conf conferences that is actually quite complex. So um, this was uh, interesting, right? Because uh, from the beginner's minds, so if you if you see the spec and you just implement it step by step, you are done. If you're a little bit lucky, it will work, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. As long as you follow the contract. <laughs> yeah. And um, so is it still useful, the EDI, or is it like it's over? 
Oh, it's definitely alive and well, I would say. Um, so it's, it's still heavily used in the U.S. in the health industry. I think, you know, in shipping and, and it's so embedded in these industries that I don't, you know, even though there's better, better, more easily developed technologies available now, it's, I think it's going to be here for quite a while. Okay, so what's the competitor of EDI then? So you say there are other technologies. So what do you, if you don't if you don't like to use EDI, what do you would use then? I guess just like a you know XML or JSON. Okay. The new flavors of data formats. Mm -hmm. And how to imagine EDI? So let's say what is the EDI Hello World? Uh, well, in in EDI you have you have these basically each. I mean, let me start over. There's there's some control information in the file that explains, you know, this is who the data is from, this is who the data is you know, mm -hmm. being sent to, mm -hmm. and then there's you know sequence numbers, dates and times, things like that, mm -hmm. and then so there's there's several levels of of envelope information, and then within that there's there's transaction information, and the transaction is predefined by this by the standards, and there's you know there's several hundreds of these transactions that are defined, so you can't just send arbitrary information really. Um, you're really, you know, you're sending a, a health claim or you're sending an acknowledgement. So there's there's certain structures that are dictated by the standards that these transactions have. So that, I don't know that there's necessarily a, a an a hello, you know, hello. No, but yeah, I would, I would imagine though, if there is a training training course on the very first day, there will be something like an order or something. This is for me like a you know, very f first thing, like hello world, right? Mm -hmm. I know it, I think, from SAP, right? SAP is also using Edifact. So some, of course, they are using, but, um, and, uh, um, oh, interesting. So, and you kept working for the company, just you know, digging deep, deeper and deeper to Edify, uh, to Edifact. Well, I I was there for nine years, and I did several different things actually. So, um, I was I worked with the EDI um, department for maybe three years, mm -hmm. and then and then I moved to a to a different area within um, the IT department, dealing with um, it was dealing with the scanning of of the paper. The paper claims that we would get. So it was basically the opposite. So EDI received the the electronic version, and then the other the other side would receive paper ones and them use OCR to extract um, mm -hmm. you know the, the actual detail off of those images. Mm -hmm. So I didn't work work with the OCR part, but I did work with a you know an area in that department where we would generate images from the electronic data. Mm -hmm. um, and that data was loaded into a system called FileNet, which you may have heard of before. It's you know just a content management system, and um, you know you could you could look at this this claim as if it was a paper image or an image of of the paper. Okay. And that was that programming was all done in um, you know COBOL. So I got into mainframe programming and batch jobs and, and things in that in that area. So you started with Basic, then Visual Basic, C Assembler. Java, then K shell, and then COBOL. Yeah, all, all part of it. Okay. And you enjoyed it as what was your reaction to COBOL actually? Um, at first it was I didn't quite understand the syntax. There, so there were, you know, coming from like I took things quite literally. So when when you're when you're moving data around or copying data around in a COBOL program, there's a there's a move statement, I believe. Mm -hmm. You move one field to another one. And I for some reason, I took it quite literally that the data would no longer be present in in the in the source field that you're moving it from. Okay. But you know, after I got past like these, you know, the little nuances of, of the syntax, <laughs> mm -hmm. I I, I think I did start to appreciate 
COBOL is a is a, a capable language. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm probably the only person you'll ever hear say, but it's um, you know, it's it's an I, I appreciated it for what it was. I think, yeah. and, you know, I did enjoy it. I don't, I don't think I've ever run to into a a programming environment I didn't I didn't learn to appreciate. Yeah, uh, I I've worked a lot with uh, the backend or host developers. And they always appreciated a PL1 RPG or COBOL. So if mm-hmm. you if you know the language well, and they were always fast, they were they, what they really liked is the performance because on the uh, mainframe everything is tightly integrated, everything runs mm-hmm. in the same memory. So this was, and the IDE is also integrated. So what I saw, they always worked, you know, in the inside the green screen. So there yeah. was no disconnect between the source file and the machine. Yep, ISPF editor, I think it is, is what that's called. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and, and um, yeah, it's and even just the job, the you know the batch definition mm-hmm. language JCL. I, I always thought it was pretty cool how you could you could make small adjustments to the way your files are defined, mm-hmm. and have these you know massive impact on the performance of, of how things run. Just specifying block sizes and extents to to files and things like that. Just Really, mm-hmm. you really had to know what you were doing. And you tried to introduce Java, or was it like hopeless? So you, you know, because on on mainframes it was very fashionable to run Java in one point of time. So what I remember, mm-hmm. we ran um, CTG Common Transaction Gateway with uh, with Java. So there were there were attempts back then to how to call it to 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 run Java on mainframe, yeah, or to mm-hmm. or to migrate the uh, or ex- at least expose the uh, transactions to Java environments? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, we never really, I mean, it was constantly talking. We, we, you know, mm-hmm. there was so much code in COBOL. How do we migrate this into Java mm-hmm. so it could be supported long-term? And I'm sure those conversations are still happening. Um, mm-hmm. But Java was never, the problem with that is on the mainframe, there's a lot of people that have, I think, you know, they're used to maintaining the system as is, and there's not a lot of room for experimentation, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was it was almost impossible as a developer to, so even just trying out Java or installing it, I wouldn't even have known where to begin, you know. Mm-hmm. So that never really happened. But there was a lot of Java programming in the distributed environment that accessed, you know, the mainframe information through DBU and also MQ. So that it was there was Java development, just not on the mainframe. Exactly. So uh, the MQ was uh, often used as an integration point. So what I mm-hmm. remember what we did, we um, used uh, MQs to send messages to the host and there was like encapsulated transaction protocols. So the messages were not like events and more like commands. And mm-hmm. these commands were extracted and executed on the host and the host um, did something. So executed the transaction and we get the result back in a different top uh, queue. It was also a queue. So and we listened to the queue and did something with it. So to remember, this was like an early hack how to communicate with the host, because we were not allowed to use the host directly because uh, sometimes you know the databases were not designed that way that you can interact with them via JDBC. So they could become uh, inconsistent. So uh, they were mm-hmm. only accessed via, for instance, PL1 triggers or COBOL triggers and stuff like that. Yeah, we did that, and there was we did access the database directly. Um, oh, okay. And there was, there were a decent number of um, COBOL store procedures as well. Uh-huh. So, you know, it just basically encapsulated logic, I guess. Uh-huh. And if I remember correctly, if when you're running code in DB2, there's a, there's a cost associated with that, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. on the, exactly there, everything, there's a cost with everything on the mainframe, I think, as far as yeah. 
like MIPS and how much yeah. CPU you're using. Which is back now in the clouds, right? So all the serverless yeah. and Lambda is uh, ev- everywhere is a cost associated with the invocation. The longer the invocation takes, the more you have to pay. So we had that 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Just on-prem, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So um, and in one point of time, you, you were back to Java or just kept you no know, cranking COBOL code or what happened? So I did get back to Java. So I switched teams again to... Okay. Um, it was still within the claims department, but it was dealing with um, basically interacting with with third parties. Uh-huh. And we we were developing a web application that would allow some of our employees to make modifications to these claims, uh-huh. you know, as they're as they're in the middle of being processed. So it was a green screen application that we were migrating to, uh-huh. to use Java. <clears throat> so um, that was really my first experience with you know application servers and. And um, I assume you know, WebSphere, right? Yes, of course. Because it's IBM. So you mentioned already MQ and AIX. So I think, okay, then I guess it's going to be WebSphere. Right. And, you know, we were using a, the the IDE was... Visual uh, H for Java? Uh, WSAD 5.0, I think. Or something. Oh, WebSphere Application Developer Studio. And this was yep. the successor of... Visual Edge for Java. So I used the okay. Visual Edge for Java, and WSAD was Eclipse based. So Visual Edge for Java was a migration from Smalltalk, was the first one. And WSAD, and there was the Enterprise Edition and the Standard and Professional, I think. It was like Eclipse with plugins, right? Yes. Yeah. And I had experience with Eclipse, just regular Eclipse in, in school. Um, so I was a little familiar with, you know, WebSphere. Mm-hmm. But it was but- very it was very slow on my desktop. Yeah, it was always slow. And uh, so around, I would say, 2000 to 2003, what I did in lots of companies, no, it was later, maybe 2003 to 2005 or something. So I was in several projects where we replaced WSAD with plain Eclipse with Xdoclet, for instance. Just We just drop all the plugins and, and focus on standards and we could increase significantly you know, the performance and the, no performance, developer performance and productivity. So uh, the mm-hmm. uh, because um, you only used Eclipse for editing, so there was no plugins involved and the deployment happened outside. And um, this increased actually productivity a lot and my clients were stunned that if we remove the commercial commercial plugins, the productivity can be increased, which was crazy back then, right? Mm-hmm. Right, for sure. And, you know, I always try to make the argument, hey, why don't we just Eclipse? Yeah. You know, usually, usually because, you know, the the... The supported version of it was several years behind, and it was much slower. Yeah. Yeah. And you could use even with the plugins on the newer version, much easier to use. Mm-hmm. Better okay. developer experience. So, um, so you uh, probably wrote application web script, I guess, a servlet or struts even, which talked yes. via JMS and MQ to the backend, and you did something with the data, right? Right. So <clears throat> it was basically it was allowing them to do crud crud activity on on these mm-hmm. claims. And it was using it was using a JDBC pretty much exclusively okay. at that point, yeah. But it was you're right, servlets, JSPs on the front end. Okay. And you enjoyed the experience? No, it was too slow. So you wanted you know to just use um, Eclipse Plane, but you couldn't, right? Right. It was very controversial to use anything other than ported yeah. IBM. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and, and what happened but, then? So you stick stick with the with the department, and and you you wrote the WebSphere CRUD applications. Uh, pretty much, and you know, I I did move to different areas that supported different um, types, different aspects of the claim processing, um, but it was all using um, you know the same 
same stack, you know, servlets and JSPs and like we did use struts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe we really got to we never got to the point where it was like APIs in the back end and mm-hmm. you know JavaScript front ends, and that was just starting to come about, or at least I was starting to become aware of it around that. So um, <clears throat> when you did something else, so when you stopped, you know, using servlets on WebSphere and did something else with Java, was it that like you know a breaking point in your career or what's so? When I, I started, I, I left that company and I moved on actually after that. And we started to do, um, you know, some API work at the next, you know, my next job. So, and even then I started to experiment. It, it was around the time where where the batch interfaces or the batch um, standard became part of Java EE. So there was some applications I worked on that would do some batch processing and then and you could interact with it with APIs on the front end. So you actually used the Java E batch, JBatch specification? Yes, I did, yeah. And I, I think I found some bugs and contributed which contributed those upstream or some bugs. Okay, interesting. Because I never yeah. never used it. So my, my clients ask me sometimes about batch. Okay, if you know if the batch doesn't have to be restarted and we can just use executor service or something uh, simpler than this. And I never had the opportunity to actually use the, the batch processing, really. So um, mm-hmm. were you happy with that? You had to use it or was it... so? What is the killer use case for JBatch on Jakarta E Jakarta E batch? So, what is the killer use case from your perspective? Well, we had these. I, I'm, I'm sure you could do this other ways. <clears throat> um, you, we had these these large files that we needed to basically split into individual, you know, individual transactions and, and load mm-hmm. them every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, what attracted me to the to the batch um, JSR was <clears throat> basically you can you can have the if I remember correctly you could there's like splitters and you can uh-huh. run things in parallel and chunks uh-huh. and you could have each chunk can have checkpoints so you know we were there were occasionally errors and this what this allowed you to do was you know roll back a chunk and reprocess it you know you know x number of times and then in parallel you're still processing other other you know pieces of the file <clears throat> so I thought that doing it using the batch standard was preferable because it's managing all the threads <clears throat> and you're really oh. just specifying the code to run each chunk. So you enjoy the DSL-like experience where you can say, okay, declaratively uh, split and repeat it X, X times if, if it doesn't work on error and, and you just use the capabilities of the framework. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. Mm-hmm. And uh, was and it a different was a, company? <clears throat> was it a different company, right? Yes, that was that was at a bank, so okay. a, a regional bank in the US. And was still WebSphere? That was WebSphere as well. Um, okay. And I will, yeah, <clears throat> I was so I was there for a few years, um, basically working on on that, and then I, I switched to a a another company, and that's where I got involved, or that's where I finally got the chance to use a different server. <laughs> so, Which one? <clears throat> they they were using Wildfly at that, that okay. job. Wildfly. So it was already. 2007, 2008, something like this? Oh, this is, no, this is 2016, actually. Okay, so even, even later, okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, Five years ago, okay. And what did it do with Whitefly? They, they were running an application on there um, to, to allow um, truck companies to interact with this service garage. And okay. um, basically, it, it was at that point where I was, I was really starting to learn a little bit more about, you know, how these application servers are together. And mm-hmm. I... I I was a tech lead on that on that team, and I was trying to push for you know migrating some of our applications in, into using Wi-Fi and, and, and using the Java EE standards really. 
Um, so we were on, on that wildfly, we were running spring and mm-hmm. it was, you know, spring is, is very embedded in a lot of places. I think at least what I've seen. And I think a lot of developers think that it's really the only way to develop nowadays. And from what I've seen, it's a lot of, a lot of people are maybe not as familiar with the newer versions of Java EE. So I was trying to, to convince that we needed to, to just clean that kind of thing up. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, we were developing APIs there as well. Some of which were SOAP, and some of the newer stuff we were developing using um, Jackson. Okay, so interesting because you you spent some time with WebSphere and you and you then moved to a company who uses um, Whitefly, and you still like Java. E. So this is interesting, right? So you are not burned by the slowness of WebSphere. Usually, what I hear, you know, that uh, yeah, Java E is slow, and what people thought back then that a Java E is equal WebSphere. So <laughs> if they, they right. yeah, and, and, and you say, okay, this is not the fault, you know, of the, of the spec. It's more like the problem of the runtime and you can be very productive with white flight. This is what I understood, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, the development experience was much better. Um, mm-hmm. the, the less stuff you, you throw into your, your application, the, the better your experience is, I found. So, you know, anytime people complain about you know, the application slow or the server slow, usually it's, from what I've seen, it's, it's it's a like a jar it's a scanning issue when you know spring scanning a you know thousands of classes or mm-hmm. you know your your dependencies are or you're you're adding dependencies you don't really need mm-hmm. things like uh, that one question why spring and wildfire were used together so i saw this also a couple of times and i never got the idea why such a thing I mean, why to do that? Because you could run Spring standalone, which is understandable, or you can mm-hmm. run Whitefly standalone, which is also okay. But running both is just a, a little bit crazy for me. It always was. So, what were the reason to use Spring together with Whitefly? You know that that decision predated me, so I can't okay. answer their why they, why they did that. Um, it, you know, I, I always wanted to, to separate the, those two. You know, but either, for what Spring was used, but because uh, the Java and Spring were very, very similar. So I mean, there was some overlap. So were they like areas just for Spring, and other areas were solved with Java E, or what? What was the you know the architectural decision there? No, it, it was also so it was basically just using Wildfly as, as the as the server container. So it, ah, it as Tomcat. It. Okay, yeah, so uh, yeah. Wildfly was misused as Tomcat. Okay, yes, but this was exactly. even worse, right? So <laughs> this is uh, yeah. And um, okay, and, and you managed to, to, to clean it up, or, or was it like lost fight? It was kind of a lost fight, unfortunately. Okay. It, it was never worth the effort, to, you know, to, mm-hmm. to do that because you know the business doesn't see any change. It's just yeah, it's all, it's all technical. Yeah, and what happened then? So you stick with the company, you 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 um, left the company. So what was the the story then? Well, I ultimately did leave, but while I was there, and, you know, working with Wildfly. That's kind of when I got exposed to the to, to the microprofile mm-hmm. environment. So you know, I knew that Wildfly was supporting certain aspects of it, and I wanted to use additional ones. So Wildfly at that point was not supporting Open API, and mm-hmm. one of the things we wanted to do was you know document all of our our applications using Open API. Mm-hmm. And in, instead, some of the other developers wanted to just pull in the Swagger jars, and I said, hey, that's Let's not do that because I know eventually Wildfly is going to support Open API microprofile. Mm-hmm. So let's use let's use let's just use an implementation of that, and we can use the standard. Okay. So, um, you know, naturally, I used the small right implementation for that. And, mm-hmm. and as I was trying to integrate that, 
you know, I ran into a few a few differences between what Swagger was generating. So I, I actually started getting involved in, in the Small Ride project at that point. And, um, okay. So you're a committer. You you're a Small Ride committer. Yes. Oh, okay. They knew that. And, and uh, Open API or other specs as well? Open API primarily. I, I did some work um, early on with the um, JWT Jot mm-hmm. stuff as well. So there, we wanted to use that, you know, for OAuth in our applications, and it was it was kind of difficult to integrate that. It was there were no there was no direct integration path just using the line. Uh-huh. So um, I, I added a a uh, a Java security HTTP authentication mechanism into the small right limitation, so you could just it made it much easier to just drop it in. Uh-huh. And you know, several months later, it officially became part of Wildfly anyway. So it. It wasn't as as useful long term, but you know it got us going initially. I have one question because now you have an open API expert here. Uh, sorry, op- uh, small eye open API micro profile expert. So what I tried to do one t- last year actually, mm-hmm. um, what you can do, you can write like uh, how it's called and the you know the interceptor, w- which gathers the uh, metadata information with open API as part of the micro profile spec. So I forgot mm-hmm. the actual name. And the, uh, the filter, maybe? You mean the yeah, filter? the filter, exactly. And what you can do, you can, uh, you get the inform- the metadata, you get the, you know, which was gathered, but you the don't model. get yeah. the model. But there is, to my knowledge, I tried that, but then I couldn't get the reference to the class where the model comes from. And why I wanted to do this? Because um, let's imagine you have a JPA entity, let's say, with bin validation annotation. So what I wanted to do is to reuse the bin validation and generate open API annotations. Or yeah, open JT, not annotations rather than the model because for annotation it's too late. So I would just know map the um, bin validation annotations to open API. And mm-hmm. last year it was not possible. So I forgot actually to ask at the community. I just said, okay, stop working. So, okay, it's not possible, not a problem. Of course, what I already thought to do is not to use class for name and, and just load the class outside, but this is not a good solution. So um, you know what I mean? Is it is it possible now, or or is it like not possible at all? Because my thinking was, if uh, the filter it gets the metadata from somewhere, it would be nice. And usually in Open API, this is a class with annotations, so it would mm-hmm. be nice to to be able to access the class. So I could even get you know more information. I could just use reflection to scan the class. Right. So you're you're right about as far as the class for name. That's probably the only way. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason being is. Uh, you know, I you know I know in some of your projects you're probably using Quarkus or Wildfly, so the you know the annotation scanner doesn't actually look at the classes, mm-hmm. the class um, annotation index data. So if you've heard of the Jandex project, mm-hmm. at the point at the point we're scanning the annotations, we're not looking at the classes at all. Yeah, that's all. a very good answer. So uh, so it means you you don't actually have the the reference to the class. Mm-hmm. Right. And, so that's and a problem. even mm-hmm. if we did, it wouldn't. We wouldn't. It wouldn't be in the model itself. You know, we even if you look at the class, get the information from the annotations, move on. No, no, you are right. We are right. But the filter via the filter, you could get you know the reference to the class, not through the model, but rather give me the context, and you have the context. It's similar to you know in JPA. If you really want, you could get you know the reference to the connection, for instance, right? Uh, it is okay. also not to, to to meant to be that way, but uh, you can. Ask entity manager to get, I think, the delegate, and then if you know that it's a delegate, you can ask for, for whatever. So, but um, yeah, okay. But this, this now I get it. So this was uh, mm-hmm. the 
but it could be optional, right? So uh, you could implement something like uh, get um, get information source or metadata source, and in case you have it, you will get a class. If not, it will be null. So this this could be doable, for instance. And a lot of times, so a lot of times the the challenge is the like the schema you have at the point you're looking at the filter. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's different ways that the information can get into that that uh, open API model. Yeah, you know, there's a you know, there's a static file, there's a, a reader that you can implement code to actually generate it yourself. Yeah, but and, we, let, let's see. Well, you, what you can have, the information source could could return either a file or a reader or a class. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's, could, a, that's interesting, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, you could have, you know, get information source and you get something, object back, and, and then you can see whether it is useful to you or, or not. And in, in case of, of Whitefly, you will get somehow the Jandex representation, whatever, whatever, however it looks like, because um, it would be also okay to give me all the annotations of the class, right? So not mm-hmm. only the open API, also the other annotations. This would be also a solution, but this is even harder. Yeah. But yeah. no, it was just and, a size. Yeah. I was going to say, in, in small, right? So you were, using, you were looking for bean validation. The so what I did, uh, what I did, I had uh, a JPA entity with a view um, small right open or open not small right open API annotations, mm-hmm. also bid validation annotations, and uh, you could use the bid validation on JAXORS endpoints. And I said, okay, um, it would be nice, you know, dry to be able to reuse the annotations and generate from bin validation annotations, not null and size and so forth, open API annotations because they are similar. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, okay, the the obvious way to do is with, with the filter. But as I said, in the filter, I just got the model, but I didn't got the model source. So whatever I got, I already knew, but I was interested in the bin validation annotations. And for me, there was no clean way to get them except class for name, which is a little bit brittle and not nice. Well, yeah, we do scan the bean validation. So if you have, if you have a bean or a pojo that is mm-hmm. imparted, you know, it's picked up by the annotation scanner. Um, if mm-hmm. you put not null on there, the bean mm-hmm. validation annotation, it will okay. flag that as not null. Okay. Now, when maybe you, there was, when it, when you scan this, when it happens, it's all uh, part of the same scan. Okay, and uh, did it work last year already? You know it, or is it recently? Uh, it depends. If, so it's it's possible it was not implemented for the the parameters, the endpoint parameters. Um, okay, this could, this could be an explanation. Okay, yeah. but if you if you already recognizing the bin validation annotations, this is what what's enough for me. So perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. sorry for the uh, excursion to bean validation at OpenAPI. I actually didn't knew that you are a committer, a small right committer, an OpenAPI committer. Um, so um, you quit the company then, right? So you started, you, you worked with Whitefly a bit and uh, you, you used uh, OpenAPI to replace Swagger. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the story then? Well, it was, you know, eventually became time to move on. Um, okay. I, you know, about a year ago, and I went back to my, to my previous employer for a few months. I wanted to, you know, try some architect work. Okay. There, <clears throat> and that it didn't. It wasn't. It was. It didn't. You know, interest me as much as I was was hoping it was, mm-hmm. or would rather. And, um, you know, probably two months ago, three months ago, I, you know, I was in communication with some of the, some of my um, colleagues on Small Ride. I made a switch to Red Hat. <laughs> oh. Within a couple of months. Yeah. So you are you are working for Red Hat right now? Yep, with you know it's been it's been about a month and a half. So. <laughs> oh, nice! And you are working on OpenAPI, or what you're doing? I, I'm working on on a new product that's um, it's 
it's basically uh, managed Kafka on OpenShift. Oh, okay. Very it was just announced about 10 days ago. Okay. Yeah. Even better. So uh, the JSON API is the past, right? So you're no more interested in JSON API. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I think it's, it's <laughs> you know, we, we haven't really talked about that much. But, you know, I did a few side projects, you know, just um, small websites for, you know, outside of my professional work. And, um, you know, what what happened was, you know, you noted in your uh, in your AirX TV that that um, it was developed or it was developed as, as part of Ember. So I was I was using Ember front ends, and I kept finding myself creating the same backend code over and over. And and Ember, of course, uses JSON mm-hmm. server. So at that point, I, I started extracting that logic server side to you know intercept or to handle his requests to validate them and to interact with the database and that, that's where that that library <clears throat> the the um, rvp the rest validation persistence library so th- what really i liked about json api was a it was being used by ember which was front end framework i was using and b it was you know it was just a, a bunch of decisions. It decided for you a bunch of decisions mm-hmm. that you don't need to make. You know how to do paging, how to how to define your your entities mm-hmm. across the wire, things like that. So a lot of times in projects, you you know, you have to keep every new project you need to design. Mm-hmm. Just was a, another design decision. And uh, about the history, so you. In one point of time, you pinged me um, as a question. I think at the HexDV, the, the first question is how you found out about the AXTV. So this is like, uh, so how you found it? You, you remember this? Uh, it was probably just you know searching on YouTube and it came okay. up, you know, looking for stuff. I think it was just it was you know by coincidence. So because uh, you asked something like, "What is my opinion about JSON API?" and uh, I mm-hmm. took a look on that. And uh, I was surprised that it was actually created by Yahuda Katz. And uh, the Yahuda is also behind Ember and probably 100 others popular JavaScript framework. So really um, bright guy. And the JSON API looks like standardization of the, how to call it, D- DTOs, right? Uh, over the wire format. And, mm-hmm. uh, and this is clean and understandable. So you have relations, you have the, 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 the entities. Yeah. And, and it reminds me on, you, you know, OData? Yes. So it a is similar, but I haven't done too much with it, but I am familiar. Yeah. So O data is ugly, I would say, but uh, it comes from Microsoft, and this is O data is more like you know how to expose database directly, and this mm-hmm. JSON API is more like just about the DTOs. So it's not as complete as O data is, I would say, right? Well, there is. It does define you know how your URL should look, what query parameters you. Should, oh, exactly. You join, yeah. join data together. You're right. But uh, yeah, this is um, you're right. But the, the they are they are describing the JSON API from the point of view of the DTO author, I would say, and the O data is described more from the service perspective, I would say. So um, if you look at the O data specification, so you will find the URIs first, and then what's what's is passed over the network. And if you if you open the JSON API, you will find you know the JSON format. First, and if you read, you know, the JSON format, you will find the URIs. So it's interesting. So this is why the assumption yeah. was that the JSON a- JSON API is focused on JSON and OData is focused on re- on REST API. Yeah, on REST API, actually. So this is, um, yeah, mm-hmm. but they are similar. And um, of course, uh, GraphQL is also somehow related to, to this family, right? So we have JSON API, GraphQL, and um, 
and OData. Right, and I think there's others too, but <clears throat> I, the thing I, that that I found interesting about JSON API is it's, I think you know you said it yourself. It's 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 pretty readable. Um, yeah, it's you can instantly know what's happening when you when you mm-hmm. get a URL or a, you know at a payload mm-hmm. request or response. And what you've wrote, you've wrote a, a runtime which is able to generate the uh, JSON API. Well, it's it's basically it's yeah it's it's a layer that sits on top of uh, JPA, Bean mm-hmm. validation, and JAXRS. And what it does is um, you give it a list of APA entities that you'd like to expose, mm-hmm. and it's gonna it's gonna do the work of looking at those entities, and and basically it has the the code in there to serialize them, deserialize them, validate them, things like mm-hmm. that. So you could use Ember JS and uh, and uh, a microprofile run or microprofile Jakarta because new JPA runtime mm-hmm. or Quarkus would probably also work, right? Quarkus, Whitefly, or Helidon would work out of the box. Right, I think so. I, I primarily used Wildfly in, in most of my testing because that was what I was. But um, yeah, I don't I don't see why you couldn't use it with any any okay. of those frameworks. So now, the, the one problem with Quarkus might be there is reflection going on. Okay, yeah, okay. It's not maybe if I had an extension that would work. But now you are at Red Hat, so you have enough time, you know, to migrate it to Quarkus, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it means um, so it really means if I have the JPA entities, I could use your runtime and I get an Ember compatible layer. Correct. And, you know, you could use that JSON API for many JavaScript as well. So one of the features I added in there was to, you know, in addition to generating the endpoints, mm-hmm. it will generate a small JavaScript file that that has okay. the endpoints and serialization code. Basically, it's wrappers of the fetch API. And okay. then you can get and retrieve your, your JavaScript objects using those. So it's pretty usable. But, so because... Then I actually, why is it usable? Because the JSON API is very readable. So uh, if you if you have it, you can immediately call it. There's actually nothing to document. It's very very readable. So mm-hmm. if you go to the JSON API spec, you will find immediately an an example of um, articles, I think, and authors. And and if you read it, it is immediately self documenting. I would mm-hmm. say, right? Yep, I agree, definitely. Mm-hmm. And and you are maintaining okay. the library still, or I you know I, I change it when I need to for for my own. You know, I'd be more than willing to, if, if there's a, anyone that's interested in using it or finds problems with it, that's, you know, I'm okay. happy to, to fix some fix bugs and things. What are your needs? So you're still working on something in your leisure or what are your needs, you know, you say? Well, I had a couple of side projects that I was using it for. Um, and mm-hmm. one project, I actually still have going on some, some EDI stuff. So <clears throat> I wanted to, to build a, a translation system. Okay. And that had a REST API and a UI. I was using the JSON API library to, to support that. And this is Xlate project, right? Yep. So that organization is is where I keep my my projects in GitHub. So you are you are maintaining the uh, Xlate libraries as well. So it's there's not. I mean, as far as like development and innovation, it's mm-hmm. it's you know I don't there's not a whole lot going on like that. Mm-hmm. But it's you know if people are using those libraries, but particularly there's a you what are recognized you're also offering a product so what is the product about so it's you know my marketing skills are not not too good so it's it's it hasn't been very successful but <laughs> it's 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 a server that you would use to translate and track so it's it's and it's using another library that's open source in in that xlate organization called steady and steady is basically it's this it's it does for edi what stacks in in the jdk does for xml Mm-hmm. So it's a streaming, streaming reader and writer. 
mm-hmm. and does validation and things like that. So this this server is is built upon that, and it it has a database and it'll it'll track history of your EDI files and generate acknowledgments um, for for files that you are receiving inbound. It's like C- CMS for EDI. Kind of. It's it, think of it as like an online validator. Okay. On a, it, it, okay. EDI validator. It doesn't store. It doesn't store the data. It's assuming that you're you know once you convert it to a different format, it needs to go somewhere else, like SAP okay. or your database. Okay, perfect. So what I would suggest is that we meet again and talk about Manage Kafka. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'll have, I'll have a lot more that I learn in the meantime. So as a cliffhanger, what is the name of the project, Manage Kafka Red Hat? So the, the, the name of the announcement is Red Hat OpenShift Streams for Apache. Red Hat OpenShift Streams for Apache Kafka. So this mm-hmm. was the longest name I heard, you know. In the, in the past, we had Whitefly, JBoss, and uh, even OpenShift, and now we have a very long name. I don't know whether it's a good good sign or good or bad sign. Do you have any internal cool project name at least? Um, I don't. I don't know how much I can talk about. I haven't been okay. long enough to. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the next time, ask someone. It would be nice to to know. You know the internal project name because the internal project names are always more fun. Right. Perfect. Hopefully, I can, can spill some more beans. <laughs> <laughs> of course, where people can find you on the internet, you know, a Twitter account or website, blog, well, whatever you have. So I, I don't really use Twitter. Or I don't, I th- you know, if I like it, you know, the, most of the stuff I do is, is related to GitHub. So if you come across any of my projects or, you know, you, you find a bug, if you're using, mm-hmm. you know, open an issue or you can chat or most of the projects have my email. Link. Okay. The best. So perfect. Thank you. And I learned a, learned a lot about EDI actually. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thank you. Bye.